Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPNLP. This week, our architecture expert spoke to the author of McMansion Hell. We chatted with the executive chef at Spiaggia and the lawyer who represents the victims of rogue cop John Burge. All this, plus the Trump diaries and much, much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for September 22nd, 2017. Kiefer Dunn spoke to Kate Wagner, author of the popular architecture critic site McMansion Hell. Wagner spoke about the loneliness of the suburbs, how mall culture shaped her generation, and the ridiculous decisions that make McMansions what they are. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. This episode originally aired as a special during the Chicago Architecture Biennial. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and we're here in the studio with... uh, Kate Wagner, who's an activist, blogger, um, and sort of, as, as I've learned, um, hanging out with her yesterday and a little bit this afternoon, um, a, a, a totally brilliant ar- architectural thinker. Um, you might know Kate from her work as McMansion Hell on the internet. Um, Kate, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, yeah, you know, we we're talking with, um, uh, or we'll be talking with Nick Cordy and um, Joanna Kloppenberg about the kind of biennial and some of the criticisms that we might level at it. And I think um, you're here for the biennial, so we might get into some of that too here. Um, but, you know, just to say one of the great things about the biennial and, and uh, is, is that it does bring a lot of people together to meet for the first time. And, um, you know, we met for the first time yesterday. So really excited to have you here. You were just kind of at the first opening salvo of um, biennial activities. Um, I don't know. What what did you think? <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, as a space, the cultural center, I'd never been to the cultural center before, so the, the domes are really impressive. Acoustically, yeah. though, horrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, That's right. I forgot the other part of your uh, bio, which is that you're a, a, a acoustician by training. <laughs> Close. I'm almost done with the training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Um, well, I think it's interesting. There was a variety of different uh, things on display. I I came because I wrote an article for the Biennial blog about um, Keith Crumwida. Is that how you say it? I think so. Uh, his book, Alice of Another America, which mm. is uh, sort of like critical, uh, pseudo-utopian or tongue-in-cheek utopian uh, American uh, architectural treatise. It's like, it, it's like if you uh, put together Jeffersonian urban planning – and uh, like land allocation techniques to a critique of American consumerism, you would have that book, and it's amazing. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, so that's what I came to see, and hopefully, I'll they have uh, they have these amazing drawings in the book uh, that are like they take classic paintings and they superpose like McMansions, like conglomerate McMansions, like in the background. Like, I they're see. They're just amazing, and they have them as like a huge wallpaper. And I hope someone takes my picture in front of it. Actually, <laughs> they'll be in my picture for a while. Yeah, we can we can make that arrangement. Oh, I'm sure. that would be that would be sick. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, and the other thing I think was interesting is, uh, as I I guess we were talking off off the air, uh, the, the resurgence of postmodernism in new practice just is, is shocking to me yeah. because I've been so buried in my own research um, about you know postmodernism in the vernacular realm that I've totally ignored its reentry into formal architecture. I yeah. kind of saw the reentry of postmodernism in interior design starting in around like 2015, but. I didn't realize that it had also permeated the formal architectural discourse once more. 
Um, so there's kind of like a, a smattering of that. It, it's this sort of like pop, like aesthetic, uh, like the internet meme, you know, like the aesthetic, uh, like vaporwave kind of <laughs> right, uh, right. kind of postmodernism. Uh, the coolest part, I think, of the exhibit this year is that they did a um, Chicago Tribune uh, tower contest. Right. Uh, like they did the the one, um, you know, the original one where, of course, you have Adolf Loos's uh, famous column. Right. Which is what expl- explain for those who might not know what the column is. Or I can do it. It's it's just a giant skyscraper that's one huge column. It's it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny that Adolf Loos did it. I still think to this day yeah. that it's funny. Yeah, the man who wrote Ornament and Crime making literally a building <laughs> that's a giant piece of ornament. It's pretty remarkable. <laughs> amazing. He's amazing. Um, but the so and of course there was a resurgence of that competition in the 1980s. Yeah. So you see all these great entries from like really postmodern architects, and the Loos column was revisited by Robert Am Stern, who yeah. did one with like a with like a LED marquee key at the top yeah. uh, just like totally I mean tongue-in-cheek and so this one is really interesting because you have a lot of you know different forms you have people who are working in more um, like material kind of constructions like there's one that's just made out of like steel or like what looks like you know really polished steel beams it's kind of like vaguely deconstructivist you have one that's like almost like mid-century formalism right. uh, that revisits the column theme for the third time which is a really interesting take on it and then you have one that's actually seems like an amalgamation of like of like postmodernism. it really re- almost reminds Reminds me of like uh, mannerism, right? Um, that there's like all these different mismatched arches and colonnades and whatnot all cobbled together in this in this skyscraper. It's a really startling thing to see because it's I mean it's it's based off of the concept of like the pastiche, um, but that was really interesting to see all these like exhibits uh, or, or like the the new like the 2017 Chicago Tribune Tower Compass and they're huge actually. The the yeah, towers like themselves are like 16 feet. Tall, right? feet yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't wait to see it in person. I'm very curious. Yeah, and I, it's interesting too that that um, this distinction between sort of like postmodernism um, and and its sort of like informal and vernacular uses and in, in, in history, <laughs> uh, the use of history in that in that context, and it's sort of like more you know formal um, um, entry into architecture discourse, as you put it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm always curious like what the driving factor is behind all of these things, right? Like how do we connect uh, any of these cultural movements or styles or what have you um, to sort of larger socio-political issues? And um, being a sort of like activist and organizer who's also in, in DSA as am I. Um, you can, you know, I, th- I think you're well positioned to be able to like think through sort of what the bigger structural um, implications are um, for this kind of architecture. For, yeah, for like this postmodern resurgence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know at least uh, maybe, maybe it's it's a lot to ask like uh, to make a hot take based on one morning of the biennial. But um, you know, one thing we had talked about was you know sort of um, McMansions, right? And 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 you know that that's maybe more more familiar territory. That's less of a hot take. Um. Oh well, I mean, I don't mind doing hot takes. All right, uh, let's, yeah, cool, great. <laughs> <laughs> so I think as far as the sort of you know, postmodern resurgence, a lot of, you know, these architects are probably like mid-career now, I guess they would say like 30s and 40s, well, mid, like early, still early career, but, you know, they're, they've, they've exited the, you know, architecture school program and they're starting their own firms and uh, they're starting, you know, they've taken a more theoretical path perhaps to, to design than a more, you know, really objective building kind of practice, like the building making practice rather than, 
uh, they're taking a more theoretical, yeah. I think, look at it. Yeah. I think that what's uh, really interesting about it is that I think to a certain degree, there is like a kind of nostalgia there because, I mean, of course, these were people who grew up probably in like the 80s, like the late 70s right. and the 80s. And right. so they their their youth is associated with those aesthetic motifs. And so as you know, you reach a certain age and you start to long for, you know, pine for youth, that, that does come back in sort of interesting ways in, in people's like thought and design. But at the same time, I also think that um, what's so interesting to me about, you know, post-modernity and the sort of postmodern aesthetic is that during its original inception with maybe, I would say, maybe this is incorrect, with the exception of like, you know, radical um, architecture groups in Italy. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere, like in the U.S., like post-modernity was, was essentially like the aesthetic of, ne- of neoliberalism. Right. Right. Um, this these sort of like historical um, motives and these or motifs rather and these coupled with like this like booming like economic uh, like you know this economic development that happened you know during the Reagan and Thatcher eras Uh, and how much of it is coincidence and how much of it is like aesthetic um, connection with those economic ideals is like probably still being debated honestly but there's no doubt that like the shiny mall with the with the you know silver palm trees is (laughs) postmodernism. the the old the permeation of that aesthetic into the consumer realm is is extremely uh it it was an ethos i mean you see all all these people like mourning the dead malls and stuff and mourning like this aesthetic of interior like when people renovate like old department stores from like the 80s and stuff like people get really upset Right. Because it's just so associated with like this childhood that came about during a time of relative economic prosperity. Of course, like we're feeling the effects of that now. But um, I mean, the the pre-bubble bursting was yeah. really kind of an interesting time to be like a child. Right. Um, you got to see like it seems like 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 light. It's like bright and fast is really kind of what it was like. Yeah. <laughs> The Klonsky brothers spoke to G. Flint Taylor, a longtime civil rights lawyer who represented the murdered Black Panther Fred Hampton. Taylor spoke about the FBI's tactics against dissidents in the 1960s, discovering Hampton's corpse, and how he is fighting for the tortured victims preyed on by rogue cop John Birch. Hitting Left with the Klonsky brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Our in-studio guest is none other than the uh, legendary uh, Chicago civil rights and social justice attorney, G. Flint Taylor, good morning. Should I call you G or Flint? Taylor? I think you can go with Flint. Good Flint. morning. Okay. Glad to be here. What, what does a G stand for? Uh, we're not saying George. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, good. All right, we'll just call you Flint. Do you have an introductory note? Sir? What? Flint, you want to tell us who you are and well, why, we, why we thought yeah, it was what are good you doing to have, here, you, uh, have you on our show? Well, I was just walking down the street. <laughs> the wrong street, apparently, yeah. from that phone call yeah, we received. Yeah. Five blocks away, right. Um, well, uh, I'm a lawyer from the People's Law Office. I uh, have been for almost 50 years. People's Law Office has been doing work fighting, starting with the Fred Hampton Black Panther case. And uh, wait, wait, before you get in that, wait, wait, did you, are you a Chicagoan? Did you grow up here? No, 
I, I grew up uh, in Boston. Maybe you could tell from the way I was uh, my, my accent. But I came here for law school. So I've been here. It'll be 50 years uh, when the, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Democratic Convention. And wh- where did, uh, my wife asked me to ask you this. Uh, how, why did your parents name you Flint? <laughs> it's a family name. Uh-huh. Um, my great-grandfather's name was George Flint. And he was a senator from the state of Maine, and he passed down the name to my father, and he, who um, that that was maternal grandmother. This is too much information. No, probably, no, no. But, it's pretty interesting. Um, and then, so my dad got named G- George Flint Taylor, and so then I was named George Flint Taylor Jr. But I come from originally George Flint. Well, before we get into the bird into the bird stuff, which we definitely want to want to do. Uh, I, Go, let's go back to fifty years and and uh, uh, to, to your to your uh, role in the founding of the People's Law Office. I, it, it, it was when I came in seventy three. I think you were on Halsted, was it on Halsted and Armitage yes. around there. We were at twenty one fifty six North Halsted, which then was kind of, was uh, was not the neighborhood it no. is now. No, it was before. Uh, what what year was this? Uh, Sixty nine when we started, uh, and uh, and we're coming up on the fiftieth anniversary, and in this case, of the everything. first anniversary yes. of everything. Yeah, Every, everything important in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what were you what were you doing in sixty eight? In sixty eight, I was uh, starting out law school here at Northwestern. I came to Chicago a week after the convention, so I'll have to defer to you guys about what happened on the street. I was in Bulgaria. Time. I can't testify <laughs> okay. about anything. I can testify. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I got my sure tail can. kicked over there. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, yes, yeah, so it, uh, I, I got here as a raw first-year law student in 68, uh, late August. And uh, the next year, uh, I was uh, threw my lot in with uh, some crazy young uh, lefty lawyers. And uh, Were you a lefty before that? I mean, how did uh, you— It was a process. Yeah. Um, when I hit, the, hit Chicago, I wasn't particularly. We mentioned the Kennedy family. The summer of 69, after my first year of law school, I had the option of either going back to Boston and working on Teddy Kennedy's uh, campaign or whatever he was doing at that time, or staying here with my brothers and sisters who were— just about to start the People's Law Office and work on getting Fred Hampton out of jail. And for some reason, I opted to stay here. And as they say, the rest is history. Well, do you remember when you first met uh, uh, Fred Hampton? Oh, definitely. Tell us. Well, I first saw him because he was in jail when I, when, when I first started working on his case. Now, Fred, sa- Fred was, for those who don't know... Uh, and I know I, I've actually met a lot of uh, progressive people who, right. who don't know people, yeah. Fred was uh, was uh, the founder of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. Not only that, he was just one of the most charismatic young men, uh, great leader, uh, someone that the FBI had targeted uh, as the uh, as a, as a leader they needed to uh, destroy the way they destroyed Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and other leaders of the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, but yes, Fred Hampton came out of jail. We were able to get him out on an, on a bond uh, in uh, August of '69. So I saw him at a church uh, speaking to this huge gathering of mostly African American people. Uh, but we were there. Uh, and he was talking about hearing the beat of the people when he was down in Menard. And he How was can we just, ever forget that speech? You, you were there too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's the first time I saw him. But I met him uh, one-on-one when I brought him to Northwestern to speak at the law school. 
And that was a couple of months later. And I went on the west side to pick him up in my old Nova. And um, I'm driving him back. And, and I'm thinking, this guy's paranoid. You know, he's saying, there's a pig over there. You know, uh, pigs are following me, you know, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people are not to get well, you, right? He, he wasn't paranoid <laughs> in the least. I was naive. Let's put it that way. So we got to Northwestern. And, you know, when you when you plan radical functions at a lily white male law school in the 60s, you don't expect too many people to turn out. Well, I walked into the Lincoln Hall, the, the big, biggest uh, hall in, in Northwestern at that time, and lo and behold, the entire school was there. And, <laughs> and my job was to introduce him. And it was about my first time uh, public speaking in front of more than one person. And um, you know, I'd bumble my way through, and, and Fred made a point of pointing out that maybe I ought to learn how to talk a little better. If you are going to be a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's, uh, that's when I had a first one-on-one with him. And a month or two later, I was standing in his blood down at uh, mm. 2337 West Monroe the uh, morning he was murdered. Well, we've been talking about Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party, and um, uh, let's get back to it. One of your, one of your, that, was one, that was one of your first major uh, cases— yeah, it was my first major case. I started out as a law student and uh, ended up 13 years later uh, when we finally resolved the case. It was my first trial, and it was one of those short trials, uh, 18 months in federal court, the longest trial in federal history. Wow. Uh, and and I learned, fu- the assassination uh, uh, took place in... Uh, 69. In 69, when uh, uh, Hanrahan, the uh, state's attorney, uh, led, a, uh, led a charge on the house where... Uh, uh, where Fred and his uh, family, his wife, and who was pregnant with their, uh, with Fred Jr. That's right. Uh, and Mark Clark, another leader of the Panther Party, were sleeping, and uh, the raid. Uh, uh, I guess hundreds of bullets were fired into the house, and. Uh, uh, yeah, about and uh, we were documented uh, along with uh, ballistics experts about ninety nine bullets being fired, not only with the shotguns and <clears throat> excuse me handguns, but also a, a machine gun that the police brought. Um, there were s- nine people in the apartment, a little tiny apartment on the west side, uh, young Panthers. Uh, many of them were wounded, uh, and Fred and Mark uh, were murdered. And who was charged with those murders? Um, we're still looking for the first charges there. Uh, there's a long history of, of community outrage. Uh, after the uh, the raid, the police, it was an early morning raid before dawn, and uh, the police left uh, it open, and that's how I ended up there uh, as uh, a team of, of young folks from the People's Law Office went and, and took evidence for the next 10 days, day and night to document what we now know, which is that there was not a shootout, as Hanrahan claimed very famously uh, across all four newspapers and on all the TV stations at the time, that it was a shoot-in. Melanie Adcock spoke with Kent Green, a product manager at Reverb.com. Green filled us in on what a product manager does, how tech companies iterate, and why high-tech solutions are no substitute for the good old-fashioned paper notebook. Texting Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. 
Hey, Kent, our first guest today is Kent Green, and he is here with us today to tell us about the Meetup Group Product Tank. Uh, Kent, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie. Oh, we're glad you're here. Um, now, to start us off here today, I'd like to ask you um, perhaps the, the easiest or the hardest uh, question that I'm going to ask. Um, I'd like to share with our listeners what a product manager is and what they do. Yeah, I think it's it's easy because you could take the easy, the simple route in technology and say something like, oh, we're the people person. Um, but it's hard because you could have 50 different product managers in here and get 50 different answers. So what I like to think of it as is I'm helping my team, which is made up of engineers and designers, um, build the, the right thing at the right time and give them all the tools to do so, be that um, framing up designs or you know very first drafts of designs, writing out stories of what we're trying to accomplish, helping to establish numbers that we want to hit and say, like, this is the thing that we need to do now, either because it's been defined by leadership or because we're seeing it come up from customers or from the, the customer experience team. Mm-hmm. And, and how did you get started working as a product manager? Yeah, it's a bit of a long story. We, I, we've got some time. Okay. I have a background in journalism and then in education. And mm-hmm. then uh, transitioning those, I worked at a nonprofit in communications for a while in San Francisco. It was a literacy organization. And um, when I was a journalist, I had built my own website uh, to, to get freelance, uh, my freelance work out in the world. And so I knew a little bit of code. And I'd be staying late at the nonprofit and seeing, oh, like the, this is a little messed up. I can fix that. And that mm-hmm. turned to me being the tech guy at the nonprofit, so literacy mm-hmm. organization. This is a low bar. Um, but we got a, a grant to build a Salesforce volunteer and donor database. We built mm-hmm. an intranet so all the different chapters could mm-hmm. share information. So I had that. Um, I was doing product managing before I knew I was doing it. I was talking to stakeholders. I was working with consultants to build these tools. And then I transitioned to a company in Chicago called Braintree, which is now mm-hmm. uh, the mobile commerce division of PayPal. that We got acquired in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I was doing client services there, but I was always doing that tool building. Like I would work on a tool to track our feature requests. And eventually I started just bothering the PM team at Braintree. And basically, how can I be what you are? I really miss the uh, helping to actually leave something behind that I built. Mm-hmm. And the team is very supportive of this. They found some side projects for me. And eventually I transitioned full time into uh, what was called the treasury team at Braintree, which was in charge of basically finances and moving money correctly. And Braintree is a credit card processor. So if you uh, take an Uber and you, whenever you're saving your card, you're saving it behind the scenes uh, with Braintree securely, and they're oh. pinging the banks. Oh. And so their value prop is a nice technical interface for all these mobile startups to use um, so that you don't have to deal directly with the banks. So we were doing all the money management there. And so I was a PM there on that platform for about two and a half years. Mm. Well, what kind of uh, products do you manage now? Yeah, so now I'm at a company called Reverb.com. I've been there for about four months. Mm -hmm. And we are a marketplace for musicians, which means uh, we connect people and companies that want to buy and sell new, used, and vintage instruments online. Um, And and I've heard product managers referred to as many CEOs. Do you think that's accurate? I have a lot of feelings about this statement. Um, You'll see it in the wild. I think the the most important thing to remember is you're you're probably actually the janitor in some sense. You're in there like really in the weeds trying to think of like, maybe not so in the weeds as the developers and understand the database and the code and the the stress on the system or how things should work. But you're trying to figure out like, what are all the edge cases that could happen? What do we really need to accomplish here? What is the meat and potatoes that have to get done? And then maybe helping with like um, different interruptions and bugs that are coming in so so Mm -hmm. the team can stay focused. Um, So... I worry that the CEO thing gives it a little bit of glamour, but I think there is a true angle that a coworker said to me one time where it is true in as much as like the buck's going to stop with you at mm-hmm. your product. Um, you know, I have a team and, you know, we definitely sort of succeed and fail as one. Um, but, you know, it is sort of like 
I like to think that I can, if it goes wrong, I want to think like I didn't queue up the story correctly for you. I didn't give a good um, data metric we're trying to hit or give a good wireframe. And so, you know, if it, if we something goes sideways, I'm the one that gets called in the office. And But if it goes good, then they're the ones who um, get the credit. And I like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a great that's a great perspective and point of view on that. And and you know, as, to be clear, know, as they yeah. should get the like the yeah. team. I'm I'm really helping coordinate, and I like to think setting up for success. But it is the designers, engineers that are like delivering and getting the things out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you tell us how the role of product management is changing to involve more big data and analytics? Yeah, I think it's changed in as much as that you can't not think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm building something and I'm not thinking about how to track it, I'm not thinking about it correctly. And the most important thing there is not to think about how to track, but what to track. Mm Because you have to, if you follow the wrong thing, you're going to deliver the wrong thing. So you have to think of the problem you're trying to solve, the experience you're trying to accomplish. And if you know that, and you may be able to figure it yourself, but you may have to work with a data science team Mm -hmm. um, or some coworkers to figure that out. But from day one, if you can have some kind of tracking for your projects, you know, if it's successful, if it was unsuccessful, or if there is even no impact, and at least, you know, okay, no big deal, but we know maybe we don't return to this. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot to gain mm-hmm. here. Well, and then, you know, pro- product managers use uh, a lot of whiteboards and sticky notes in their day-to-day activities. Um, what kinds of software and online tools do do um, you use to help with productivity? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say the whiteboards and sticky notes because I can't say enough about like offline tools and like a little paper notebook. Those three things are so nice to get you off of digital and not getting pinged on Slack or answering emails. Mm-hmm. Like they force you to focus in those initial stages, which is really important. But once you're off the whiteboard and the sticky notes and the notebook, um, we use a tool called Trello which mm-hmm. basically is a digital manifestation of a card wall if you had sticky notes yeah. on it and you can move it around. And that's really helpful. I think Google Docs are indispensable mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you can basically put out an idea, say what you want to accomplish, maybe add some simple screenshots and then send it to the developers or engineers and they can comment on it. And they don't have to comment on it in real time. So you don't burn meeting and you don't throw it in Slack and hope people see it. Slack is an online chat tool that mm-hmm. we use as well. And uh, it gives you that time to sit back, read it, I can marinate on it a little bit and really think through the problems. And that sort of, um, you know, the, the, the buzzword is asynchronous communication. But when you don't force someone, we got to solve it in 30 minutes, but you can sit back over your own time and really let this sink in. I think that's that's super essential. That That is that is cool. And now, uh, what is the importance of listening to early feedback from testers on a, on a new product or service that you're creating? It's really important, you know, kind of obviously, but I think the Im- most important thing is, like, get to the root of that feedback. Mm-hmm. So if they're telling you that, like, the, the common joke in PM is, like, we need a button, and the button has to go here, and the button has to be red. And it's sort of a trope, but it is really true. People will... We'll say like, oh, this doesn't work. Let's just add something that I can push and make it happen. And um, you want to sit back and like, why, what are you trying to do with that push? What's happening? Can we automate this? Is there Mm -hmm. a bug further up the system that you shouldn't even have a button to solve this problem with? And if we can get to that, we can deliver something really, really valuable. So you, and you know, it could be something much bigger. It could be like a new, you know, onboarding story or a completely new feature. But really when you're doing that, and we've done some user interviews, which I find super rewarding at Reverb. Um, Because it's really great, and they just point out things that you wouldn't have thought. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's really useful. But when they call out those pain points, dig into those pain points and figure out what's sitting behind it. Because it it might be that, but it might be something that they hadn't even thought of that you can unpack and really like solve and give them something valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and so um, you know how how do you know? 
if you're building the right product and creating something that is actually needed in the, the marketplace. It's kind of related to the last question, but yeah. it's kind of different direction here. Like, how do you know you're making the right thing? Man, if, if I knew that all the time, I'd probably be a founder and, you know, sitting on an island somewhere with millions of dollars. But I think, I think what it comes down to is I, I think there's going to be some kind of tension there that, mm-hmm. that is in the world or in your life or in your consumer's life that is bothering them and that you can fix. Like a great example is Reverb as a whole. Um, our founder had uh, successfully had another startup that exited in options trading, and he was a musician, so he um, wanted to get into buying and selling instruments online, and he found out it was not a good experience. And he was like, I could do this better, and here mm-hmm. we are. Mm-hmm. And so you, and that's the same story of like an Uber or, or um, TaskRabbit. Like I need help finding people to do errands, or I just need a cab, and there's something that's not working there, and you can make it better. So at the macro level, whether that leads you to launching a company, or, for example, we were seeing that when people, like if you were to go into Reverb and to set up a store, there's not like, if you're in Reverb and you've done it enough, you're like, oh, it totally makes sense. But if you come to it with fresh eyes, you're like, we don't always give you the clearest guidance of how you might want to sell an instrument or what kind of information we need from you so your shop can be set up correctly. Mm-hmm. So we're working on right now a new process that will really cleanly guide you through that. And um, mm-hmm. we noticed this because we would have people end up in weird states in the system that we didn't tolerate well or people would have questions about why is my account configured that way and it's like well we're not we're not taking you through we're not helping you we're we're not saving you from yourself so to speak Mm -hmm. and giving you that clear path to get up and running really easily so again you'll feel that tension or from if you hear a lot of reports from customer service they are your best friends or, or sales that like this isn't working what's going on you dig into that and you can you can find that need This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump claims bigger hurricanes have hit America than Irma and cuts a deal with Democrats to Republican outrage. The GOP tries to resurrect a zombie bill to repeal Obamacare. Trump then delivers a bizarre bellicose speech to the U.N. that upends 72 years of American policy, all as Robert Mueller's investigation picks up pace. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 238, September 14th. Democratic leaders say they have a deal with Trump to quickly extend DACA protections for young undocumented immigrants. In a joint statement, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi say they cut a deal that enshrines DACA protections and finalizes a border security package that does not include the president's proposed wall. After some strange early morning tweets, Trump confirmed the measure. It would still need Republican support. Some in Congress are already indicating they will sign the measure. Trump is coming under withering attack for the deal from some of his strongest supporters with hard right and Coulter calling for his impeachment. And congressional Democrats told Robert Mueller that Michael Flynn failed to disclose a summer 2015 Middle East trip to broker a Saudi-Russian nuclear power deal. Flynn also refused again to appear as a witness before the Senate Intelligence Committee invoking his Fifth Amendment rights. In related news, Flynn's son, Michael G. Flynn, is now subject to the federal Russia probe as well. The Phoenix New Times reported that employees at Motel 6 locations in Arizona regularly alerted ICE agents to its guests, many of whom were then detained and deported. The practice has drawn sharp rebukes from human rights groups and calls to boycott Motel 6. Motel 6 senior executives say they became aware of the practice only in recent days, and when they did, they moved to end it. And federal agencies were ordered today to remove antivirus software made by a Russian technology company. The company, Kaspersky Lab, is suspected of close ties to Russian intelligence agencies. Kaspersky denies those links. The company is considered one of the foremost cybersecurity firms in the world and is known to have excellent antivirus software and anti-spyware tools. It is unclear how much of the firm's software is on federal computers. 
And the White House said that ESPN should fire a reporter who called Trump a white supremacist. Host Jamel Hill, who is African-American, called Trump a bigot and added his white supremacist positions were a threat to her. ESPN addressed the tweet, adding that Hill would not be suspended or punished. And the Trump administration is lowering the refugee quota to its lowest level at least since 1980. Trump has already reduced the resettlement cap to 50,000 people annually. Stephen Miller is pressing for a lower ceiling at just 15,000 people a year. And the Department of Justice is blocking the Senate Judiciary Committee from interviewing two FBI officials over the firing of James Comey. The DOJ cited the appointment of Mueller and related matters as their reason behind stonewalling Senate investigators. And Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin requested use of a U.S. Air Force jet for his and Louise Linton's European honeymoon this summer. The jet cost $25,000 per hour. Mnuchin's request was denied. Day 239, September 15th. A terror attack in the London Underground drew tweets from Trump. Trump touted his travel ban and claimed Scotland Yard had failed to be proactive. British officials called Trump's tweet about loser terrorists unhelpful, said Prime Minister Theresa May. I never think it's helpful to anybody to speculate in what is going on in an ongoing investigation. And Tim Scott, the sole black Republican in the Senate, sat down with Trump to rebut the president's claim that both sides were to blame for the violence in Charlottesville. Scott said he shared his thoughts on the affirmation of hate groups and the last three centuries of challenges from white supremacists. Following the meeting, Trump doubled down in his claim both sides were to blame. And North Korea fired another ballistic missile over Japan on Friday, a direct challenge to the United States and China, days after a new sanctions resolution was adopted at the UN. The missile was not aimed at the Pacific island of Guam, which Trump had warned could prompt a military response. Neither the USA or Japan attempted to shoot down the missile as it was clear it was not aimed at land. And Trump on Friday escalated a battle with government ethics groups by declining even the face of a federal court order to release a comprehensive list of individuals visiting at his family's Mar-a-Lago resort. The surprise move by the Department of Justice centers on what kinds of records related to private individuals visiting the president should be open to public inspection. It also brings renewed scrutiny to the president's private business empire. Day 240, September 16th. The Senate Judiciary Committee is taking steps to ensure Trump cannot fire Robert Mueller. The two bills in development came after concerns that Trump was considering dismissing Special Counsel Mueller in his frustration about the Russia probe, despite White House claims to the contrary. And the Trump administration will cut funding for the Affordable Care Act enrollment groups by up to 92%. The grassroots organization known as ACA Navigators helped people to sign up for health insurance during the open enrollment period. And Harvard has revoked its fellowship invitation at Chelsea Manning. A dean at the university said this morning he had revoked his offer to the former soldier who was convicted of leaking classified information. Harvard was under heavy pressure to do so. Mike Pompeo, the director of the CIA, withdrew from a Harvard forum on Thursday citing Manning's fellowship. And James Mattis, defying Trump, issued a Department of Defense guideline saying that transgender troops may re-enlist in the armed forces. Day 241, September 17th. Trump early Sunday tweeted an edited video clip that appeared to show him knocking down Hillary Clinton with a golf ball. Trump retweeted the edited gift from an account called F Up Mind. The clip shows Trump hitting a golf ball which carries over into another clip and is edited to look like it makes like Clinton fall. Previous tweets from that account included anti-Semitic messages as well as tweets insulting Muslims and transgender people. At least one anti-Semitic tweet posted by that account was deleted shortly after Trump's retweet. And National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster denied that Trump is reconsidering his decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Change Accord. That's a false report, McMaster said of reports from Agence France Presse and the Wall Street Journal. The reports had cited a top European climate official. McMaster did say the door remained open to a renegotiation. 
and the Russian news agency Sputnik is under FBI investigation over whether it acted as an undisclosed propaganda unit in the USA. That would be in violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Russia Today, or RT, which also published this segment in the New York Times, will be required now to register under FARA. Day 242, September 18th. A New York Times reporter overheard a White House counsel discussing the extent to which the administration co- should cooperate with the Russian investigation. Ty Cobb was speaking with a colleague at BLT Stake in earshot of the reporter who promptly published that Cobb supports prompt turnover of all relevant emails and documents to special counsel Robert Mueller. Trump lawyer Don McGahn is concerned doing so would weaken the White House's future position. McGahn and Chief of Staff John Kelly dressed Cobb down for his carelessness. And a last-ditch push to obliterate Obamacare is nearing a showdown vote in the Senate. The effort spearheaded by Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy is still a long shot. A bipartisan group of governors came out against it yesterday. Under the Cassidy-Graham bill, millions would lose coverage, Medicaid would be slashed, and insurers in some states could charge higher premiums to people with pre-existing conditions. The Congressional Budget Office has not yet scored the bill. And Sean Spicer made a surprise and much-criticized appearance on the Emmys as part of host Stephen Colbert's opening skit. The bit which saw Spicer claim that the Emmy ratings were the highest ever was a dig at Trump's infamous claim that his inauguration crowds were the biggest ever. Many pointed out that having a known liar appear on the broadcast was part of an attempt to rehabilitate Spicer. Trump later tweeted the Emmy ratings made him sad, that smart people were the deplorables. And Michael Flynn's family established a legal defense fund claiming a tremendous financial burden stemming from the Russian investigation. Trump recently legalized anonymous donations to legal defense funds. And an Interior Department memo has proposed lifting restrictions on studies in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. That is a possible first step toward opening the pristine wilderness area to oil and gas drilling. The Arctic Refuge, which covers more than 30,000 square miles, has been closed off to commercial drilling for decades. Opening it up has been a top priority for Republicans. Doing so, even to determine how much oil is available, would be politically explosive. And Trump is considering closing the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson attributed the potential move to, quote, the harm that certain individuals have suffered at the embassy from unexplained health attacks. The Havana compound reopened in 2015. Day 243, September 19th. Trump brought a confrontational message to the United Nations today vowing to totally destroy North Korea if it threatened the United States or its allies. He also denounced the nuclear agreement with Iran as an embarrassment that he may abandon. His audience of presidents, prime ministers, and diplomats sat stone-faced as he asserted some parts of the world are, quote, going to hell. Trump also vowed to crush loser terrorists and derided North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, as rocket man. And the Senate Intelligence Committee abruptly postponed an interview with Trump's longtime lawyer, Michael Cohen, shortly after the publication of his opening statement, which asserted his innocence and defended the president. Cohen claims the president's critics are using rumors and innuendo about Russian interference in the election in an attempt to undercut Trump's presidency. But senators shut down the closed-door hearing, accusing Cohen of releasing a public statement, despite requests that he refrain from public comment. And Trump advisor Paul Manafort was wiretapped following an FBI investigation in 2014. Surveillance continued through this year. One FISA warrant was originally granted for Manafort's work for the former Ukrainian government. A second FISA warrant concerning the Russia investigation was also obtained. Robert Mueller has been given transcripts of the conversations. Mueller also aggressively pressured Manafort and his associates at one point telling Manafort he was going to be indicted. 
and Trump is paying his legal fees related to the Russian investigation with RNC and re-election campaign funds. The move is legal, but Trump is the first president in modern times to use campaign funding in this matter. Trump lawyer John Dowd told reporters from Reuters that the financing of Trump's legal bills was, quote, none of your business. And Trump has rejected a Department of Health and Human Services study demonstrating the positive economic impact of refugees. The DHHS Regaf report said refugees contributed an estimated $269.1 billion in revenues to all levels of government over the past decade, amounting to a net gain of $63 billion. The White House, led by advisor Stephen Miller, is seeking a credible rationale to end all legal immigration and stop all refugees from entering the country. Day 244, September 20th, Hurricane Maria has made landfall on Puerto Rico as a Category 4 storm. The hurricane previously caused grievous damage on Dominica as a Category 5 storm. The Carolinas could be a long-term target as this fast-moving hurricane develops. Trump, speaking after the devastation of Harvey and Irma, claimed the USA has had worse hurricanes and declined to answer questions about climate change. And Republicans have abandoned a key tentpole moving forward with massive tax cuts that would greatly add to the federal deficit. In order to attain a $1.5 trillion tax cut over the next 10 years, the federal debt is projected to grow by another $10 trillion over the next decade. The GOP claims without evidence that tax cuts will pay for themselves. Leading economists vehemently disagree, pointing out they are mainly a giveaway to the rich and that the cuts could actually stifle growth. Republican hypocrisy is rich. They happen to stonewall President Obama on infrastructure spending, claiming the deficit was paramount. And 11 governors, including five Republicans and a pivotal Alaskan independent, urged the Senate on Tuesday to reject a last-ditch push to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Republican leaders continue to press for a vote, choking off a separate bipartisan effort to shore up health insurance markets. Senator Patty Murray of Washington was working on that bipartisan effort, said bluntly, Republican leaders have decided to freeze this bipartisan approach and are trying to jam through a partisan Trump care bill. And Trump's polling numbers have rebounded slightly, with a morning caller poll finding his approval rating at 43%. That same poll also found that nearly half of all Americans now support single-payer health care. Among Democrats, the support is as high as 67%. These are the Trump Diaries. Size matters, size matters. Jessica. Oh, hey, dude. What's happening across the street? A parking lot party? That doesn't look like a bank function. No, it's not the bank. It's Kyle. Kyle is throwing a parking lot party? Where is he? Oh, he's right over there. I can't the... believe this. He knows I'm trying to establish a legitimate Hey, venue. goofballs. Do you want to experience technologically advanced sweetness? Excuse me? By using quantum optics, I have created a new strain of sugar called the Pearl. Here, try a free sample. Uh, thanks. No, this is delicious. Hold on. Why don't you go back inside? What the heck are you doing here, Kyle? I'm so glad you asked because you know what? You've had your parties. You've had your lumpin' nose beef thingy. You've had your Labor Day party. And, and you've had that weird space buster thing down the block. But guess what? Now I got my party, and it's called Bridgeport Nose Candy. And we got China and her pushcart full of artisanal candies sitting right there, selling candy, and all the funds are that we raise are going to go to... Uh, yeah, here's, here's a flyer. Bridgeport Nose Candy. Hmm. 
Andrew's face 20 You knew about this? Oh, of course. Why didn't you tell me? Because you would have said no. What? Observe, this is what loyalty and friendships looks like. Hold on a second, Ed. Kyle, how did you pull in all these people at 20 bucks a pop? Yeah, I don't get it. It's just homemade chocolate. There's there's like 100 people here. Why don't you try this? Oh, Uh, no, 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 no. Your friend, though, if he wants to join the party, he will have to purchase something. Show me your permit, dude. Ed, pay the lady. You gotta try this. Nah, forget him. I only serve customers who can hang. These are seriously the best. What do you you call them? These are cocoa coconut bumps. Outstanding. Best thing I've ever eaten. Jamie, are you all right? He's fine. Can you feel your soul? Yeah, Jamie. I'm getting taller. These are like eating little pieces of heaven. Never even thought about how cool my perception of the world has been enhanced by these little candies. What is wrong with these people? They're enjoying handmade artisanal candy. I'm actually feeling a little... Wait. Bridgeport knows candy. Yes. Bridgeport knows candy. That's right. Knows candy. Yes. What'd you put in these cookies, China? What are you talking about? What was that? China, hey, get your hand off my cart. A police scanner. Time to blow. Let's roll out. Wow. Jessica, call me. Hey, no, 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 don't leave. Oh my God, me. I love you. Hey, come back. Ed, you ruined it. Ed, you stupid. Thanks a lot, Ed. She had all your money. Yeah. We were raising money for Lumpin' Radio, Ed. Lumpin' WTF Radio. Oh, I feel real weird. Is the co-pro melting? Hey, that's only chocolate inside that candy, right? Oh, mostly. Say what? Whoa, the air is viscous. Go sleep it off, Ed. Guys? Whoa, the air is viscous. These are like eating little pieces of heaven. 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 I need your candy. 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 Andrew Cappy Kaplan spoke to the James Beard award-winning chef Tony Matuano of Spiaggia. Matuano dished on truffle oil, how to create a successful back-of-the-house team, and what makes a great pasta carbonara. Hint, it's not bacon. Beyond the Plate appeared as part of the Lumpin' Pop-Up radio series at Soho House, which airs every Sunday in September, starting at 7 p.m. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Soho House. We're live. I'm Cappy. I work with Rachel Ray, and I am the host of a podcast called Beyond the Plate. Thank you to Soho House for having us. We're live on Lumpin Radio with Chef Tony Montuano. But let's get on with it. We're here with Chef Tony Montuano. He is known internationally as an influential culinary force. He's a chef partner at Spiaggia Restaurant, the 33-year-old Italian restaurant here in Chicago. 
stronger than ever, delicious, more delicious than ever, especially when they shave truffles all over the dish. Um, he's also part of Terzo Piano Restaurant in the modern wing of the Art Institute in Chicago, part of River Roast Restaurant here in Chicago, part of Mangia Trattoria Restaurant in his hometown of Kenosha, Wisconsin. What is it with Wisconsin, I was asking him. We're going to get to that in a second. He was a contestant on Top Chef Masters. He won loads of culinary and service accolades, and the former president of the United States has called him his favorite chef. President Obama. Uh, chef, I'm always excited to be live with you. This is our second interview we've done. Uh, this is the first live podcast we've done for Beyond the Plate, and it's going to be the best live podcast that we've done for Beyond the Plate. I think we're going to set the bar. That's right. That's right. So everyone here and listening in, please welcome Chef Tony Matuano. Woo! All right. <laughs> All right, Chef. Round of applause. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Chef, um... We, I, I interviewed you seven years ago, and I'm jumping right into this because my mouth is already watering, but you, we, we talked about great dishes that we like to eat, and you said that twice-cooked pork at Laos Szechuan is one of the top 20 dishes in Chicago. I asked you what your number one dish was, and I want to know today what is your number one dish in the city of Chicago. Hmm, that's a good question. I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I give you. I'll give you two or th you could have two or three. Well, I you know recently we ate at Rick uh, Bayless's new restaurant um, over here on Randolph. Yeah, late, yeah, and that whole fish that he does on the grill pretty much skyrocketed to the top five. So that's that, a delicious dish. That restaurant. That's crazy about that restaurant. It's all wood burning. There's no gas hookup in that kitchen. Which I talked to him the other day, and he, his wife had told him that he was crazy for doing that, yeah. he said. Yeah, that's, you know, going back to your caveman uh, yeah. origins. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk restaurants. Biagia, tell us a current menu item that you're excited about. Um, I'm really fortunate to work with a really young, talented team. Joe Flam is the executive chef there, and he's so passionate uh, not only about ingredients that he buys locally all the time at Spiaggia, um, but he is passionate about teaching the skill of being a chef. And I see the people that, the young people that come in and work on the line every day, and he teaches them. It starts with sharpening your knife. It it starts with uh, that. It moves, you know, just, just like this whole idea of being a professional and what to say and when to say it and, you know, what to, how to talk to your fellow workers. And... I'm not answering your question, but... Oh, I love uh, this. Keep going. But he is, he's just, I mean, he, he's creating things right now. And, of course, anything he creates or the, anyone of the sous chefs created the restaurant, they put before me uh, before it goes on the menu. But, I mean, he's rolling out uh, tortellini every day before service at the pass. And, I mean, it's a tomato pasta, and it's filled with ricotta cheese. And it's a tomato consomme. So it's like taking advantage of the great ingredients available right now. So right now, at this point in time, that's my favorite dish right at Spiaggia right now. That sounds delicious, and I'll probably see you this week. <laughs> um, you were talking about Joe and the cooks and almost like the discipline they have. I actually have a question. I know in old French cookery, when cooks were, were trying out to work on the line at a restaurant, they would... Uh, 
a lot of chefs would have a cook make an omelet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't to, well, it was to see how good the omelet tastes and things like that, but it was almost more so to see the finesse of the cook, I mm-hmm. feel. Mm-hmm. Is there something in Italian cookery, um, whether old school or new school or something brought to your kitchen? I think it comes really, it comes down to skill level and how you are, how you interact with the other members of the team. Are you someone who jumps in? Are you someone who helps out that person that's next to you if he's having trouble? And so we watch that when we have a stage that is interested in a job. How are you a self-starter? Do you really want to be there? Are you, is, is the best interest of the restaurant your best interest? Are you wanting to make an incredible product? And that's rather than one particular thing, you, maybe you make an omelet, but you can't really work with anyone else around you, then there's really no place for you. So a lot of credit goes to Joe for creating that uh, environment, but that's really what we're looking for. Yeah. Someone who plays nice with others. (laughs) That's so kind. Um, Do you have any models in the kitchen that you go by or, or things you instill on your cooks that they know chef? Chef Tony likes this. I mean, for me, it's there's so much, and I it, there's so much about tradition. When it comes to Italian cooking, it's like you have to really know the fundamentals of cooking. You have to know what goes into a carbonara. You have to you have to know the right way to make it before you add your touch to it, or you add an egg, and all of a sudden, any dish you make is a carbonara. I mean, I think it's it's just respecting tradition. So. A lot of the time, what we teach is how to make a dish a certain way. And then we can grow it from there. We can add ingredients there. We can customize it for the season. Um, but you really should understand where it came from, I think. I, I do have a question. You were talking about your cooks in your restaurant. And a lot of, a lot of people these days are talking about um, shortages of cooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was actually talking a couple of weeks ago with Chef Rocco Desperado, and it was an interesting conversation because he said back in the day, um, chefs, and I'm sure you went through this, you'd, you'd have a hundred resumes sitting yeah. on your desk of yeah. people wanting to come and work for you. And we use the word stage, which is um, kind of getting a taste of a restaurant working there for a day or two or, or a week or a month. Um, and nowadays, you're you're you know, it's hard, you're hard to come by a stack of resumes like that. How do you, how do you deal with that situation? Well, I think you have to remember that these young cooks that want to stage want to learn. They, they want to work in a place where they can pick up some knowledge before they move on. And I think what Joe and I have done is we, we actually are, we like to teach and it's an important part of what we do. Um, we teach you, you know, you're not going to learn molecular gastronomy at Spiaggia. You're going to learn how to cook. You're going to learn how to make pasta. You're going to learn how to work with one of the oldest wood-burning ovens in the city. Um, You're going to learn how to grill. You're going to learn the the basic techniques. But if you create that sort of learning atmosphere, I think that you will attract a lot more cooks. And we have a lot of cooks that that come in really from all over the country. And they're, you know, they hear from someone else or they knew somebody that worked there before and like, was it worth it? Did you learn something? And so on any particular night, a stage that's in a kitchen may have staged at Alinea and blah, blah, blah. But Spiaggia has to feel right for that person. Like if you want to learn about traditional Italian cuisine, then this is the place. If you don't, then you should work whatever your, wherever your interests are. <laughs>
Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.